Hey guys, it's Brian. Today's episode of Let's Talk About Chef contains stories and accounts of things that are frankly terrifying and very, very sad. It's about September 11th. It contains disturbing imagery, so you have been warned. This is not an episode for children. If they are in the car, please don't let them listen to it. If you would like to write into the show, you can send everything to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. I'm not going to run ads today in the traditional sense where I try and make you laugh, so let me just say this episode's being brought to you by the New York Times. You can subscribe for a dollar rate now a week. You can do that at nytimes.com. That's enough from me. Let's get right into this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. Head chef Michael Lamanico was on his way to work. It was a busy morning in New York City. It was always a busy morning in New York. The Brooklyn native had already been to voting station to vote for the city's mayor. That's why he was running behind. Normally, he would have been on time, but that year Fernando Ferrier was going against Michael Bloomberg and he wanted to do his part. The city was buzzing about Michael Jackson's second sold-out comeback show at Madison Square Garden, where the night before, Marlon Brando, Whitney Houston, Britney Spears, and Elizabeth Taylor had all performed or spoke. Michael dropped his wife off at her office and pulled into his employee parking lot shortly after 8am, and a thought ran through his head that because he was already running behind, so instead of going to his afternoon appointment at Lens Crafters to get his eyeglasses fixed, He would just do it now and not have to leave his insanely busy restaurant that afternoon while it was just recovering from a lunch service and during marathon prep to get ready for the 600 or so heads they would do for dinner. He also knew that he had to speak to his pastry chef, Helen Ho, who had given her notice in August. She didn't like working at the restaurant anymore, but he still hadn't found a replacement for her, and he knew that she would be waiting for him inside the restaurant today because she didn't want to burn any bridges. Across the city, director of catering for the restaurant, Greg Hine, had stayed up late watching Monday Night Football and drinking $1 Michelob Ultras. He had slept in and nursing a slight hangover, he was taking the 743 train from Massapeka, Long Island, instead of the 711 train that would have taken him to Penn Station, and ensured that he would have been at work on time at 8 o'clock to get ready for a busy day of service. He sat on the wrong train, cursing himself for being late and hoping that he could get to work before the chef arrived. Meanwhile, Chef Michael made his way to the mall underneath the office building where the restaurant was and walked in. The woman behind the counter at Lenscrafters said she had an opening and it would only take 20 minutes to get his glasses fixed. He took off his glasses thinking about the breakfast service that was happening almost a quarter mile above him and he set them down on the counter. Just then, a massive rumbling went through the floor. The ground seemed to shake and he thought that maybe a bomb had gone off or a subway had crashed. An alarm started blaring inside the store and the woman behind the counter rushed from behind it saying that they had to go. Chef Lamonico left his glasses on the counter and rushed to the hallway, along with hundreds of other workers and shoppers, and they made their way to the exit on Liberty Street. There was a massive smoking chunk of metal lying near the exit about the size of a minivan. It was on fire. What seemed like paper was falling like snow, and then he could hear the people screaming. He looked up and saw that near the top of the World Trade Center was a massive burning hole, and it was throwing a gigantic plume of smoke into the air. He quickly tried to call his wife to let her know that he was okay, but his cell phone wasn't working. The sound of hundreds of sirens from fire trucks, cop cars, and ambulances were all making their way towards the building from all over the city. People were running and screaming everywhere. He found a payphone and called his wife, letting her know that he was okay. He hung up the phone and made his way back towards the tower. 
He remembered that in 1993, the bomb had gone off in the parking garage, and he wanted to be at the bottom of the stairs on the ground floor when his cooks and dishwashers made it to the ground. As he made his way across the space to the doors where hundreds of people were streaming out of them, some covered in ash, all taking huge gasping breaths of fresh air, the sound of another plane flying overhead came towards them, and he looked up as the second plane exploded into the south tower, sending fire and debris in every direction. A stranger grabbed the chef by the arm and they ran. Meanwhile, having left the train and rushing to work, catering director Greg Hine had made his way above ground and also saw the second plane hit the tower, sending burning debris the size of cars falling all around him. A woman that had leapt from the building to get away from the flames a hundred stories above landed on the ground right in front of him. He stood for a moment, his brain unable to process that. Then he turned and ran too. Glenn Voigt, the restaurant's general manager, was driving to work when he heard Howard Stern say on the radio, I don't mean to break in on the fun, but this is a serious news story. A plane has crashed in the World Trade Center. Not knowing any more details, Glenn stepped on the gas and drove as fast as he could to the tower, which he could see was clearly on fire. Unaware of the seriousness of the situation, he parked in the employee parking lot moments after the first plane had hit and walked towards the entrance, broken glass crunching under his feet, and he thought to himself, this is going to take months to clean up. He assumed, like so many others, that a small plane had hit the tower accidentally. Glenn was walking under an underpass towards the employee entrance when the bodies started hitting the ground. They were wrapped in white tablecloths, the tablecloths from his restaurant. People were trying to use them as parachutes to get away from the flames and the smoke. He stared up at the building on fire so high above and he could see windows being broken on the 107th floor where the restaurant was. He could see the white tablecloths unfurling, being jerked out into the air from the building by people hoping that it would work. For a few minutes he stood there, unable to move, unable to think really as more and more people landed around him. A fireman rushed up to him and shook him to his senses, screaming that he had to get out of there. He went back to his car and drove all the way back to his house in Westchester, New York, where his wife and neighbors all ran out of their houses to greet him when he pulled into the driveway. On the 73rd floor of the World Trade Center, restaurant greeter Beatrice Genovese had been waiting patiently for the rest of the breakfast crowd to arrive. Her job was to greet guests when the main elevator doors opened. She would then walk them to the elevator that would take the guests to the 106th and 107th floors, to the grandest restaurant in the world. She was the only employee that clocked in that morning to survive. She was able to climb the stairs down. Meanwhile, inside the restaurant, Assistant General Manager Christine Allender had the guests that had shown up early to a conference in a hallway next to an impassable stairwell. She was calling on a phone to fire command in the building, asking them what to do, trying to keep her guests calm as the toxic smoke poured through the dining room. Her last phone call came through shortly after 9 a.m. It's getting worse up here. What are we going to do for air? Can we keep breaking windows? The fresh air is going down fast. She made calls to Glenn Voigt's wife, telling her that the ceiling was falling down, and that they couldn't breathe, and that the floors were buckling, trying to figure out what had happened. Other employees that weren't at work that morning watched the scenes play out in horror, wondering what was happening to their friends in the restaurant that most of them had worked at for years. Chef de cuisine Michael Emirati was at his gym getting a morning workout in when his trainer pointed to the skyline and asked if that was the building where he worked. Waiter Awal Ahmed, who was supposed to work that evening, was sleeping in bed when his wife woke him up screaming about the television. On the street, the tablecloths kept coming down. 
the tablecloths from Windows on the World. On September 11, 2001, 2,996 people lost their lives when two planes flew into the World Trade Center. Of those, almost 3,000 people, 73 employees of Windows on the World Restaurant, 6 maintenance workers, and 91 guests died. Today on Let's Talk About Chef, we are talking about Windows on the World, the restaurant that had been at the very top of the North Tower of the World Trade Center for three decades, and on the morning of September 11th was the highest grossing restaurant in the entire world, and its most spectacular. It was called Versailles in the Sky, located on the 106th and 107th floors of the North Tower of the World Trade Center, featuring views of not only downtown Manhattan, but also Brooklyn and even New Jersey. The restaurant had been the dream of 60s restaurant titan Joe Baum, who had created such legendary restaurants as La Fonda del Sol, the Forum of the Twelve Caesars, and the iconic Four Seasons. In 1970, he parted ways with his former company restaurant associates and was asked by the Port Authority of New York to build the greatest restaurant that New York had ever seen, at the top of the city. Joe Baum was known as being able to outspend an unlimited budget, and he spared no expense for this gem sitting on top of the towers. Careful estimates assume that the restaurant costs somewhere in the neighborhood of $14 million, or around $85 million today. He hired famed architect Warren Plattner to design the restaurant, who created the space that resembled the interior of an ocean liner. His proudest achievement was that every table in the main dining room had spectacular views to everyone seated, not impeded by beams or walls. He hired graphic designer Milton Glazer, who had designed the Brooklyn Brewery logo and also the iHeart New York design, to create the dishware patterns and menus and he hired chef Jacques Pepin to design the menu along with help from James Beard. The restaurant opened on April 19, 1976 as a private club with 1,500 members who all paid a yearly membership of $360 if you worked in the tower to be able to dine there whenever they wanted. Those who didn't live or work near the tower could have membership and they could visit for $10 per person. When the restaurant opened, people couldn't believe that they could dine at the top of New York City. 
Even New York Magazine published a front-page article about the space in which Gail Green wrote, Every view is brand new, a miracle. In the State of Liberty Lounge, the harbor's heroic blue suite makes you feel like you're the ruler of some extraordinary universe. All the bridges of Brooklyn and Queens and Staten Island stretch across the restaurant's promenade. Even New Jersey looks good from here. Down below are all of Manhattan in helicopters and clouds. Everything to hate and fear is invisible. Pollution is but a cloud. A fire raging below Washington Street is a dream, silent, almost unreal, though you can see the arc of water licking the flame. The food at the restaurant's lunch was also spectacular. The menu from Jacques Pepin and James Beard had the New York Times reviewer saying unquestionably the best thing about this place, other than the toy town views of bridges and rivers, skylines and avenues, is the menu. It represents an international crossroads of gastronomy, stylish and contemporary, and perfectly suited to this particular setting and this particular city. The important thing to remember here is that opening this grand of a restaurant in New York City in the 1970s was a gamble. New York in that time was not the city you know it to be today. It was overflowing with crime, both organized and street level. Prostitution and drugs were everywhere, and so was the mountains of garbage that would line the streets. Heroin had claimed the Lower East Side, and it was a dilapidated house after dilapidated house, all being squatted in by addicts. Times Square was as far as you could imagine from the neon signs and chain restaurants we know it to be today. Instead, porn theaters and heroin dens filled the area. And here you had a restaurant on top of it all, offering opulence and sophistication. It would be like dropping the dining rooms of the Titanic in the middle of the east side of London during World War II, and yet the restaurant became a smashing success. It became the hangout for politicians and actors, celebrities and sports stars would all sit elbow to elbow with regular New Yorkers who would go to windows on the world to celebrate anniversaries and birthdays. After its first year in operation, the restaurant was booked solid for six months straight. The restaurant's creator, Joe Baum, only stayed with windows for three years, after which he left and the restaurant continued on through the 80s and early 90s, launching the careers of chefs like Kurt Gutenbrunner, Christian Delivier, and Cyril Renard. Although critics would write savage reviews about the place during that time, it was mostly about the food, it still managed to be one of the top grossing restaurants in the world, serving hundreds of people every day, non-stop from breakfast to dinner and into the wee hours of the morning at its bars and wine cellar. New York was starting to change rapidly during this time under the feet of the restaurant. It was cleaning itself up, getting more modern. Windows on the World went through a lot of changes over the years, with its menu changing from the traditional 70s food with things in aspic and turkey with those little white hats on the feet and hams with rings of pineapple to more refined and executed menus. It remained during the 80s and early 90s a place for musicians and celebrities to hang out with the likes of Jackie Kennedy, Mick Jagger, Andy Warhol and Cher would all be in the main dining room drinking and relaxing. Even the rock band Kiss was removed from the restaurant after they were caught by their server drawing on the tablecloths. And then in 1993, a bomb went off in the basement of the World Trade Center in the loading bays of the restaurant. In New York City, beneath the twin towers of the World Trade Center, a massive explosion in an underground parking garage. Tens of thousands of people evacuate two of the world's tallest buildings. From ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. Good evening. Here in New York tonight, authorities are trying to determine what caused the explosion at the World Trade Center, and investigators are looking into the possibility, and it is only a possibility, that it was a bomb. 
Take a look at the scene now. It's early evening here in New York City. Between the two buildings with the lights on are the 110-story towers which dominate the skyline of lower Manhattan. All the power is off on the ground tonight. Emergency crews from the fire, the police, and other investigative agencies are looking for the cause of the explosion and still in the dark going through the almost 100 floors looking to see if there are any people. The scene earlier... More than 100,000 people either working the building or visiting it on any given day, having to grope their way down and out. At least five people were killed and nearly 500 injured. Our first full report is from ABC's Morton Eaton. The terrorist attack of 1993 killed six people, one of them a restaurant employee, and injured over 1,000. After the bomb went off in the loading bays of the restaurant, the Hilton Group, who owned Windows on the World at that time, had no choice but to shut it down. They walked away, unable to operate for the three months it took to clean up the damage from the blast. The Port Authority, who owns the World Trade Center, asked 35 different restaurant groups to pitch proposals to take over the restaurant, eventually signing a lease with its original maker, Joe Baum. After almost two decades, he was returning to his triumph and he spent no time in waiting to renovate the space from its original ocean liner vibe to something colorful and modern. He said in an interview that he wanted Windows to be a restaurant for New Yorkers again, and that's exactly what he did. Eventually, Chef Michael Lomonaco took over the reins. He was a rising star in the New York food world, having been at the helm of the 21 Club, where he had met Joe Baum, who was a regular. Only two months after he took over the reins in the kitchen and changing the menu, New York Times food critic gave Windows a two-star review, cementing its place back among the top restaurants in the city, and it very quickly became the highest-grossing restaurant in the entire world. Thousands of people every day would go through its doors, riding the elevator up into the sky to eat and look down on the city below. It was the restaurant where New Yorkers brought their guests from out of town. It was where the city celebrated its birthdays, its anniversaries, graduations, and bar mitzvahs. Its catering business was booming. Its private dining rooms and ballrooms were full every day with corporate events and seminars. The restaurant had a staff of over 400 people, and it was also a haven for the city's restaurant workers, large amounts of them immigrants, new to the city. They all knew that they could get jobs at the top of it, making massive amounts of money. It's said that busboys, who could barely speak English, would pull home around $60,000 a year after tips from generous diners. The staff was made up of people from over two dozen countries like the Dominican Republic, Ecuador, Guyana, Mexico, Bangladesh, Poland, Peru, China, Egypt, the Ivory Coast, Nigeria, Pakistan, and even Cuba. By 1997, Chef Lamonaco and Joe Baum decided that the restaurant should be the beacon of American food, using American ingredients and getting things as locally as possible. They got their produce from the green market in the World Trade Center. They worked with farmers to get the best products they could. Any given Saturday night in the dining room would see over 700 to 800 guests for dinner, with everything cooked to order, along with catering and private events happening all at the same time. It was a massive restaurant that served hundreds of thousands of people a year, and one that helped define what dining could be in a city whose dining scene completely changed after its demise. Does it seem so inviting? Ah, to me, New York, it's 
glittering crowds and shimmering clouds in canyons of steel. They're making me The majority of the employees working on the morning of September 11, 2001, were in the banquet area on the 106th floor, one floor below the main restaurant. The morning there was a cherished time for them. The restaurant was quiet, and cooks arriving for prep service would sit at tables facing east and watch the sunrise over New York. A lot of them weren't born in America, but here they were on top of its greatest city. They sat there and ate leftover cake. They would sit and drink coffee, watching the city wake up below them. Five minutes of solitude and quiet before starting work at 8 a.m., where they would start chopping vegetables and making stock in the kitchen. Meat would be braising. Orders would be flying in from the elevator that led directly to one of the huge kitchens from the street 106 stories below. In the dining room, napkins would be folded, glassware polished, ice restocked. And finally, right before the guests started to arrive up the elevators and into the room that looked over the world, the starched white tablecloths would be smoothed out and checked for wrinkles. I was young when I left home And I've been all the rambling round And I never wrote a letter to my home To my home, Lord Love to my home And I never wrote a letter to my home It was just the other day I was bringing home my pain When I met an old friend I used to know Said your mama's dead and gone Baby sister's all gone wrong And your daddy needs you home right away Not a shirt on my back Not a penny on my name, but I can't go home this way, this way, Lord, Lord, this way, that I can't go home this way. 